I don't think anyone actually wants to be a loser. Uh, I had a family member once who would always joking when, when you know, he was a teenager and adults would always ask that question like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he got sick and tired of it. So he'd say, I want to be a hobo. And uh, by the classical sense of the word, he wanted to ride the railways and that would be, that would be his life. And, and adults would like challenge him and like, well, wait, don't you want to make something of your life? And he would just continue on in that because he was tired of people asking him that question over and over again. Uh, and it was kind of humorous to see. But, but the, the reality is that none of us actually want to be a loser. We all want to achieve some kind of greatness, now, that greatness is going to look different for each person and how you define that. For some of you here, you're saying, okay, I want to be great, and I want respectability in my work. I want high visibility in what I do. Others say, oh, I don't want high visibility. I want to be the guy behind the scenes that makes things happen. Uh, others of you are like, this is crazy. I don't want any of this. I want to live in a nice home, and I want to live a quiet, peaceful life. That's greatness to me. Others of you would say, no, I want to be known as a good uh, mother, a good father, a good husband, a good wife. Uh, some of you have crafts that you do, or, or uh, craftsmanship, and you want to be known as a good uh, carpenter or welder. Uh, some of you want to be known as a good neighbor. There's lots of things that we want to be great in, and it's probably going to be dependent on each of us. But, but none of us want to be a loser, right? You don't want to go to the family party and have everyone giving you parenting tips. Like, oh, this is, those of you with young children, this is why your child doesn't sleep through the night. Uh, it's not them. It's you, terrible parent. Oh, it's so fun to get all that. It's like, oh, I haven't tried anything because I enjoy not sleeping. No, you don't want to be that. You want people to, be, to seek you out for wisdom and advice. You want people to see you with respectability. I don't know how you define greatness, but we all want to have a bit of greatness. And if there's anything that our, narrative sh our narratives and our stories show us today in the movies we watch and the TV shows and the books we read and the you know, TikTok things we watch for 60 seconds a thousand times over and over again, it's that greatness is achieved in large, visible moments, right? If you grew up in the 80s and 90s like I did, greatness is when the girl said no to the guy and the guy shows up, throws a rock at her window and has the boom box holding it up, playing the song outside her window. That's greatness. Greatness is achieved in those amazing, bombastic moments. So if that's greatness, why should we be faithful to do pointless responsibilities? You know, responsibility, oh, that word is so hard, isn't it? Responsibilities. In fact, I put it on the sign out here. Do you realize how terrible the word responsibilities is? It takes up the entire line on that movable sign. Go after church and go see. It took the entire line. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to fit the word responsibilities on one line on that sign outside. That's how boring and dull responsibilities are, especially when they're pointless. You know what I'm talking about, pointless responsibilities? Or you do the dishes, right? Why do you do the dishes? So that you can do the dishes again and again and again for the rest of your life. Or laundry. Why are you doing this laundry? So you can do it again and again for the rest of your life. If we don't do a load of laundry in the day, it's like Kristen and I are looking at each other like, oh, you've doomed us all. We have to stay on top of it. The laundry will overtake us. Or at your job, right? You have emails that you have to send out regularly, phone calls that you have to make, pointless task after pointless task after pointless task. Why should we be faithful to do pointless tasks? Greatness is calling, isn't it? Well, as we return to the text, we're in 1 Samuel. Oh, hold on one second. I got, uh, let's see. Let's, let's try this. Hold on. I have my own things I have to do today. This being one of them. Did somebody say, wow, thank you. 
Why, thank, like, you're my favorite person. You are impressed that I blew up a balloon. Actually, come to think of it now, you think so low of me that the fact that I could blow up a balloon was impressive. I don't know, Ronnie, we'll have to have words. Anyway, so we join our text back here at 1 Samuel, and we're in chapter 8. If you remember last week, Israel demanded a king, even though that wasn't God's ideal for them, but he said, give them a king to the prophet Samuel. And so God, he's not malicious about giving them a king. He's not like, ha I'm going to really mess this up. God says, okay, you want this. I'm going to give you the best of all possibilities. And so that's where we find the text here in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 9, starting in verse 1. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, and son of Aphiai, a Benjaminite a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, so immediately we have uh, candidate number one uh, that we see here, and his name is Saul, and it says twice that he is the most handsome of all of the Israelites. He is a beautiful young man. He's not only beautiful, he's tall. Wow, he's head and shoulders above the rest, literally. This is amazing. Now, this is important that this is in the Bible, because how often does the Bible give us physical descriptors of anyone that it talks about? Think about it. When does the Bible describe what Moses looked like? Or what St. Peter looks like. You watch a few different Jesus movies, right? And Peter in one looks like this burly guy with hair and a beard, right? And then you watch another one, and he's like this thin guy. And like, you're right, they they look all different. They look all different. Uh, We don't have any descriptors. Uh, What does Mary look like? I don't know. What does Jesus look like? You think of any, does the Bible give us a physical descriptor of Jesus? You would think, I mean, like he's Jewish. Okay, I got that, right? And and that we have a vague prophecy about him, a prophecy about what he'll kind of sort of look like, where it says that he will have nothing about him that we will esteem. That's it, right? So we know that he's probably not the most attractive guy in the world, but that's it. We're giving nothing else. Wouldn't you like a physical descriptor of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? You would think that's important, but the Bible doesn't give us that. It gives us no physical descriptor of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, of Mary, of Peter, of Moses, of so many others. And yet here, it gives us a uh, descriptor of Saul. Saul is beautiful, a handsome young man. Not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Uh, Help me out here. Uh, What celebrity would fit that bill today? Just shout it out. Ryan Reynolds. Why was, come on, ladies, help me. Bradley Cooper, George Clooney, Justin Bieber. Good to know. Tom Selleck. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It's the mustache. I'm going to shave so I just have a mustache like Tom Selleck. Brad Pitt. Yeah, right? Get an idea. No one said Jason Momoa. I guess his time has gone, right? It's a different look. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he, this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, young man. So the Bible gives us this descriptor. Uh, then we go into verse 3. It says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost, 
So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, and, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them there. Okay, so this is a weird thing to keep in the Bible here, isn't it? Like this is, he's looking for his lost donkeys. The donkeys back in this day were kind of like if all of a sudden the, the trucks were gone and you couldn't haul items and you couldn't make deliveries. Uh, that's kind of what donkeys were like back then. They would plow your fields. They would make deliveries. They could carry carts. Uh, they were very important. And Saul's father, uh, all of his donkeys, they somebody didn't close the pen. How many times do I have to tell you kids? I don't know what happened. But the, the donkeys are loose and they go out. And so what does Saul do? He now has to make this long journey looking for these donkeys. And it's not just like, a, hey, go down the street and see if they're there. He goes to three different towns, three different regions, walking with this one young man. It's weird that it's in here. I mean, no one's writing, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway didn't write a story about finding lost car keys, right? No, nobody's going to write a story about that. That's not the great American novel. But here we have Saul looking for his lost donkeys. This is an absolute pointless responsibility, right? This isn't greatness. Uh, this isn't how greatness starts. This is just an absolute pointless responsibility. Just looking and looking, and it's boring, and it's frustrating, and nobody wants to hear about it. Those of you with families, you know, and you have more than one car in your family, you know how this works, right? This, this is the equivalent of if your car breaks down, you're like, oh man, that's bad. If you have a have two cars and your family needs two cars. Having one car down is really bad. But you know what happens when one car breaks down in the family? Guess what happens real quick? The other car breaks down. <laughs> it's a universal law. I don't know why, but they both have problems immediately. And you're like, I don't know what to do. That's kind of the situation they're in. But nobody's writing anything about that. If anybody makes a Facebook or a Twitter post, uh, I'm sorry, X, formerly known as Twitter, that's what we have to say now, or an Instagram post, you don't go, uh, nobody comments on it. You're like, I don't want to read about this. Who cares, right? Just scroll on down. Let's go to the cat videos. Why should we be faithful to pointless responsibilities? And why in the world is Saul chasing down a bunch of donkeys gone wild in the Bible? Verse 5, when they had come to the land of Zuf, now we're up to four places that he's gone to, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. You know what Saul's talking about here, right? Anyone ever feel frustrated with the mundane tasks that you have to do every single day that nobody cares about, that nobody says thank you for? Any of you guys with family, any of you living with your parents, any of you living with children, you do a task, and does anyone thank you for it? No! They don't even acknowledge that it's done. How did the kitchen get clean? They don't even care. What do they do? They come and mess it up again. Nobody even bothers to say thank you. That's got to be the frustration Saul's feeling here. Oh, let's just go back. He's going to be worried about us. Who cares about the donkeys anymore? This is tedious. Week in, week out, or at your work. You're doing this job over and over again, and your boss never says thank you, never gives you accolades. All you get is criticism when you mess up or when your boss perceives you as messing up. It's frustrating. Oh, hold on. 
Thank you. Ah, yes. All right. Why should we be faithful to do pointless tasks? Verse 6, but the man said to Saul, behold, that's how people talked back then, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now, let's, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to give the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So... Saul's about ready to give up. He's frustrated with this pointless responsibility. He's like, dad's probably worried about us. At least I hope dad's worried about us at this point. And they're out of bread. They're out of food. Let's just go back home. And his companion, who is a little more spiritually attuned than Saul, he says, hey, there's a seer, which is what they used to call a prophet, someone who can see the invisible realm, the supernatural world, the spiritual realm that's all around us that we can't see with our physical eyes. Sometimes we can sense with our souls, but we often don't see. But there are people in Israel, his friend says, who can see the spiritual realm, he might have divine insight into where these donkeys got off to. Let's go see him. This is a pretty desperate call, isn't it? How many of you ever lost keys before? Anyone ever lose keys before? Come on, there's more of you than that. You'll misplace your keys. What do you do when you misplace your keys? You panic. What do you start doing next? Pockets, look. You look in your jacket, you look in the car, you look in the driveway, you start, like you start looking everywhere. You know what no one ever does? The first thing you do when you lose your car keys is nobody calls up the pastor and goes, hey pastor, do you have special insight to where my car keys are? Anyone ever do that before? <laughs> Barbara apparently has. Well, because they might be on your desk, right? And I, I live here. <laughs> But you're, asking, you're not asking for supernatural insight. i got to get up and go downstairs and go look at your desk. That is different. No. Right, but, but not, none of us are naturally going, I can't find my car keys. What should I do? I'm calling the pastor. Pastor, can you pray for my car keys? No one's ever asked me, Pastor, can you pray for my car keys? Do you have special insight of where my car keys are? I'll be like, ha, ha, no. Right? It's, all, it's over. This is a pretty desperate last-ditch Hail Mary effort to understand, to, to try and find these wild donkeys, to, to fulfill this pointless responsibility that they've gone to four towns now, can't find them, and they are lost. Verse 11, why should we be faithful to fulfill our pointless responsibilities? As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women coming out to draw water. Okay, hold on, we got to pause right there. Again, the Bible usually doesn't give us a lot of physical descriptors, and here it says some young women drawing water. Now, the young women part, you know, I don't have to fill in the blanks for you. You're here like, oh, young women. Here is young, attractive, no one more attractive in all of Israel than Saul. And then there's young women. And then he comes upon them at a well. The importance of the well is almost, most often I should say, there's a motif in the Bible Whenever you see people at a well, 
it means there is going to be a marriage. That's just what they do. Go back and read through the Old Testament, and you'll be like, oh, this person met their wife at a well. This person met their spouse at a well. Everybody meets their spouse at a well. And so at this point, we're reading this, and we're like, oh, wow, Saul he sees these young ladies. And Saul, we're already told, is very attractive. And the text goes out of its way to say young women, you know, not just, it could have just said women, and young women at the well, here he comes up. I mean, you got to imagine it, right? He has spent countless days looking for these donkeys. There's nothing hopeful. Then they're like, hey, let's go find the pastor and we'll ask him if he knows where the donkeys are. There's no way he's going to know where the donkeys are. And he's like, what is the point of this stupid task? There is, it's absolutely pointless to fulfill these responsibilities. They're hoofing it up the hill. <gasps> they're out of bread. <gasps> and then there's these there's giggling on top of the hill. They come up. And there's these gorgeous women drawing water. And Saul, like he is attractive. And so he goes, hey, can I have, <clears throat> could I have some water, ladies? And they look at him and go, oh, he's the most beautiful man I've ever seen. It's like Justin Bieber. And he sees it's a well. He knows his forefathers got married at wells. He could find his future wife here. Who cares about the donkeys at this point, right? What's more important, finding a wife or finding a donkey? We know the right answer. It's finding a wife. Maybe this is the whole reason. Why be faithful to fulfill pointless re responsibilities? But that's not, what it, that's not what they do. They get up there on top of the hill, and instead of doing what young men would normally do and start flirting back and forth with these young ladies, they say, is the seer here? And they answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. Um, do you believe in consequences? That things randomly happen? I mean, there's a lot of coincidences here. They happen to go up a hill. They happen to talk to the people. They happen to know where this seer is. Hold on. <gasps> It will not be my intention to pop any of these, I promise you. <clears throat> Although I will say, I blew up the first two. I got compliments. This third one, nobody's complimented me. The effect is starting to wear off here. Who knows about these consequences? There's a lot of coincidences that have happened so far. The second part of verse 14, as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, Yahweh revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Saul, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Restrain, it's an archaic way of saying, lead my people. This is the king, he's telling him. This is the new king that I will give my people Israel. This is so strange. I don't think there are coincidences with the sovereign God. I really don't. I think God orchestrates all of these things, 
And as all these donkeys are loose, Saul is looking around. God tells, tells Samuel the prophet, One, there's going to be a guy, he's going to come, and he's, he's going to ask about his donkeys. That is the king that you shall anoint over Israel. Verse 18, Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me in the morning. I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Do not send, set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? What? Saul knows exactly what he just said. Yeah, do you know where the donkeys are? He's like, yeah, yeah, the donkeys, they, they were found a long time ago. You've been wandering around for apparently no reason except to come here. And all of Israel is desiring your father's house and even you. Saul knows exactly what he's talking about. Israel was just demanding of, of Samuel that they would find a king. And here is Saul, what they are desiring more than anything else. Saul knows that he is being called and pointed at as the next king of Israel. Now, you got to put yourself in Saul's position. Here's Saul. It, 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 he, like, Samuel just drops a bomb on him, right? I mean, kind of be like if there was a young man and a young woman, and they've been dating for a while, and they're getting ready for, I don't know, some party, and the guy's talking to her, and he's like, all right, we got to get our, uh, our, our list together for the party. Uh, we need eggs, and we need chips, and we need salsa, and will you marry me? And we need a few two liters of Coke, and we need a few two liters of root beer, and uh, some guacamole would be great. Right? That's what Samuel just did. He just like, just like snuck that in there. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who cares about donkeys? He just said, I'm the future king of Israel? Why should we be faithful to pointless responsibilities? Oh, wait, hold on. I didn't get enough accolades for the last one, so maybe if I do it closer in frequency, you'll all be impressed. Or maybe I'll pass out from, you know, the hyperventilation. Oh, pastors have such fragile egos, do we not? The unfortunate part with doing that is now I have totally lost my place. In the text, verse 21, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? He's saying, I can't be king. I'm just a kid. I don't know anything. My family doesn't really matter. My clan doesn't really matter. Why are you talking to me like this? I'm unimpressive. There is no glory in my life. Church, you know, I've been here for, I don't know, 10 months. Doug probably knows it down to the day. How long have I been here, Doug? Oh, 10 months, all right. <laughs> I've been here 10 months. Uh, I, 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 Chris and I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know all of you. Uh, we love you. However, none of us, myself included, are terribly impressive on paper, right? Like, if you put our, our name out on a billboard, come to this church, so-and-so goes to this church, no one's going to be like, oh, I'm coming because this person is here, right? No, 
None of us are famous. None of us are celebrities. I mean, you know, we have our own groups of people and we have our accomplishments. But in the grand scheme of things, in 150 years, none of our names are even going to be footnotes in the history books, are they? They're not. And that's what Saul's going. He's like, I'm nobody. It doesn't matter. What is this all about? Why continue on with this? Verse 22. And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave to you, of which I said, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place to the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Okay, so uh, they, they set a portion of the food aside. It was like the choice cut of the food. I, I think in modern terms, I mean, if you're having a brownie, what is the best part of the brownie to eat? The, the edge is the correct answer. <laughs> it's not the middle, Pam. <laughs> No, it's the edges. It's always the edges. <laughs> You're not allowed to have your opinion on this one. It's always the edges. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but the edges, are, in fact, they make brownie pans. Have you seen these things? It's amazing. I don't know if they sell them anymore, but it's like they, they're like metal pieces that go around the entire pan so that every piece is an edge piece. It's amazing. What brilliant person came up with this? It's the edge. The edge is the best piece. That's what they set aside. They didn't just set aside the edge piece for him. They said, here are all the edge pieces, Saul. Wow. And the rest of you have to eat the middle like everybody else in Pam. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Why are they honoring him in this way? Verse 26, then at the break of dawn, Samuel called Saul on the roof. Up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass before us. And when he had passed on, stopped here, stop here for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Samuel singles out young Saul. And it would kind of be like, right, if at the end of service, right, we do the blessing, God is good all the time, you know, we go through all of that, right? And I go, all right. You are dismissed to bring the hope of Jesus with you into the world today, except for you, Fred. I want to see you afterwards. <laughs> it's like, what? Gulp? Am I in trouble? Is this good? I don't know. That's, that's what Saul is certainly feeling here. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince or king over his people in Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Yahweh, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. He just declares him king over Israel. This is weird that he does this. He dismisses everyone else and he does this in a private setting. Isn't that weird? I find that really bizarre. Is that how we elect presidents? Is it a secret thing that's, you know, taken into a room and, 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 and then, you know, sometime later we find out who it is? Is that how our elections work? No. 
In our minds, in our minds, greatness and great events, they all happen in front of hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people. And in the case of the presidency, billions of people, because it's not just Americans that are interested in who becomes the president, it's people all around the world. In our minds, I mean, for crying out loud, people have election night parties, and they all gather together to either celebrate or be sad and, and together. And they gather together, and you can see people just gathering, and, and there are these huge spectacles, right? And then, and then once the numbers are finally in, there's this concession speech, and then there's this big rah-rah speech that somebody gives whether, when they won. It's an incredible thing to see. In our minds, important events happen in, happen in large spaces. They happen with large crowds. They happen in, 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 in before the, the attention of everybody. And yet one of the most important historical events that happens in Israel, it essentially happens in a private closed-door meeting between two people. I think God put this in here to show us that most of the important things in life, the, thing, the moments of true greatness, they don't happen in large crowds. They don't happen publicly. They happen privately, behind closed doors. They happen privately, you know, when, when someone decides to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt them terribly. When someone decides to apologize for hurting someone when they've held on to that arrogantly for years and years, refusing to apologize. I think most of the important things in life happen in small, nondescript ways and places not in these large millions, billions of people watching. Verse 2 of chapter 10, it says, uh, Samuel says, When you depart from me today, you will meet two men at Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gilbethoam, where there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, lyre, and before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, these are some very specific signs he's given him, him here. But I wanted to mention this and <clears throat> if you disagree with me on it, uh, feel free to talk to me afterwards. We don't have time to go into it. We do have time, though. Mindy said that she has a few extra activities over there, so I could hold you captive for a little bit longer today. <laughs> uh, no, what's interesting here is oftentimes we, we as Christians or, or people in our, our culture, we're looking for signs. Where should I go? What direction should I do? God, give me a sign. And we don't take action until we see a sign. That's not biblical. What is biblical, especially as Christians, we have God the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He leads us. He guides us. We have the church. We start taking actions. We start taking motions. Uh, whether we feel God is leading us in a direction or if our brothers and sisters confirm a direction, we start taking 
uh, those directions. And if we're headed in the right way, what God does is he gives us confirmation that we're headed in the right direction. We're not supposed to wait for a sign because that could be anything, right? Like, oh, a Robin. Oh, I guess I have to buy a Batman comic, right? Like, like, it's crazy. Like, you can interpret a sign however. That's not how God wants us to do. Yes, there are people in the Bible who have done it that way, but they've never turned out well. Um, what God wants us to do is to trust him, to trust his word, to trust his people, to trust his spirit who lives within us. As we take motions in the right direction, God will confirm if we're in the right direction or not, and we look for confirmation, not for signs to direct us. We just look for confirmation from God that we're on the right path. A good example of this, years ago, I was a youth pastor. I finished up uh, my seminary degree, and uh, we were in Southern California. And as soon as I finished all that up, uh, my wife, Kristen, was like, hey, like, we need to start looking for a, a place for you to become a senior pastor where you can preach regularly because that is your gift. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, I'm just doing seminary and ministry full time. I just need to be able to focus on one thing. I'm tired. I need a breather. Things have finally calmed down at our ministry. Like, I just kind of want to, I, I just need a break. And then, you know, my wife, being who she is, was like, yeah, I really think God wants us to start looking now. And like, she just started like, you know, pestering me in the name of the Lord. And just like, all the time, it was like everywhere. It's like, she jumps out of the bread box. Ah, you know, we need to start looking now. And I really think God's having us look right now. And I'm like, come on, leave me alone, right? And I'm like arguing with her. I'm like, I just need a break. I just need a break, right? She keeps going on and on. And finally, you know, I, of course, sat her down. I said, look, I need a break. And I can't, have, no, that's not how I dealt with it. I was like, listen, I don't want to hear it anymore. We're done. I don't want to hear another word about this until I say so. You got it? Ah! You know, like the whole thing. Why do you have to yell? Because you won't stop. You're not listening to anything else. So, you know, yeah, imperfect. <laughs> like, like, like all of us together. And so it was like two weeks later, right? She, she, she stopped. And we were on a youth retreat, and I'm just going off, and I'm, you know, we're having the youth retreat, whatever, and I'm going off to do some menial task. And just out of the blue, I felt in my spirit, God the Holy Spirit say, you need to start looking now. You have a gift I've given you. You need to be in this role. This is what I've called you to. And I'm over here like, Really? after that whole, I'm the man, you know, like after all that, like, yeah, well, you weren't listening, Nathan. <sighs> she was. So, you know, after I wrestled with God for about five minutes, I'm like, all right, fine. And uh, I came back out and I'm not kidding. I, I, I resolved. I said, all right, God, as soon as we get back, I will look and, uh, and we'll go where you call us to go. And I'm not kidding you. Five minutes uh, later, I look at my phone and I got a text from the lead pastor at the time and I was supposed to be preaching before the congregation in about a month. Uh, and I was looking forward to it because that's my gifting. And, and, and I got a text from him. And he said, hey, by the way, we don't need you to preach on that day. That wasn't a sign. That was confirmation. After I'd said, all right, God, I will. And God was like, yes, you need to because you will not be able to exercise your gift here. All right, fine. Why should we be faithful to pointless responsibilities. And Samuel gives them all of these signs. You know what's coming next. Ooh, ooh, matchy, matchy. You can't see it from here, but you will in a second. Okay, I'm running out of steam here. All right, we've been watching the Wiggles because of the toddler at this house. 
So we're gonna do this. All right, guys, he needs your help. Let me hear you. <gasps> you all would make terrible Wiggles audience members. <laughs> okay. So then, verse 9, when he turned his back to leave, Samuel, God gave him another heart. God gave Saul another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. I, it's hard to picture what's happening here, but this is like undignified Jesus worship, right? If you've ever been part of a, um, uh, like, a, like a charismatic worship service, right? And people are dancing and they're clapping and they're singing, right? Like us Americans were like, oh, I don't know, you know, and we're a Baptist church. So, you know, we kind of have a kill switch. If you're going to raise your hands, it's like, all right, I'll go this high. And then your body's like, nope, can't go higher, right? You can't do it. No, right? Like that's kind of American culture, but there are subcultures in American culture where we're clapping and we're dancing and we're singing. And that is what this is like. Some of you older saints, you know, if you're around during the Jesus hippie movement, you know, the Jesus freak movement, um, all of them, right? That's what it was like. God is giving Saul everything, all of his spirit, all of his wisdom. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, so they get back home, and his uncle says, where did you go? And he said, to seek these donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And here's the moment. So what should Saul say? Well, he said I was going to be a prophet, and then the Holy Spirit came over me. I don't even know what happened. I started prophesying. I started, God started speaking through me. It was incredible. But what does Saul say? He says, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. <laughs> Not a lie, but he doesn't tell the whole thing. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not say anything. Uh, Saul is an imperfect leader, as all of us are, and all of us will be whenever God calls us to anything. His greatness is imperfect because he is not God himself. <laughs> hmm. Hold on, the neck on this one is like all. Why should we be faithful? <clears throat> that almost sounded like I sucked helium right there. Why should I be faithful? <clears throat> Why should we be faithful? Why should we be faithful to pointless responsibilities? Why should we be faithful to follow through on pointless responsibilities? What happened when Saul was faithful to fulfill these pointless responsibilities? Well, what happened was God was orchestrating the entire situation in order to anoint him the king of Israel. 
And I think in a similar way, no, you're not going to be king of Israel, but I think in a similar way in our own lives, if we are faithful to the pointless responsibilities we have in our lives, in our homes, within our families, within our works, within our neighborhoods, whatever God has called us to, whatever situation we find ourselves in right now, if we are faithful and we work as if under the Lord in every situation, if we are faithful to the pointless responsibilities we have in life, God will prepare greatness. God will prepare something glorious. God is working through those pointless responsibilities to build up, to build up slowly over time. So I have been filling up these balloons a little bit throughout the sermon. Very, and it's amazing. You're all like, what's going to happen? <gasps> Nothing. It's a balloon. Very slowly, I've been filling this up. And, and is this impressive? Are you not entertained? <laughs> no, I mean, really, like, is, is the amount of balloons that I've filled up very an impressive looking number of balloons? No, it's not. It's not. It's kind of pathetic if you look at it. But if I was faithful to blow up a balloon every few minutes for the next hour, for the next day, for the next week, maybe even for the next month, what would happen? We have a lot of balloons. This room would be filled with balloons. And I don't know about all of you, but the kids next door, oh my goodness, they would come here and they were like, it's Balloon Church! It's amazing! Wow! We love Balloon Church! It would look really impressive. You guys would be like, why in the world did you do this? <laughs> I'm like, it's an object lesson. I'm not going to fill up the whole sanctuary in an hour. But if I'm faithful a little bit at a time, over and over again, it will eventually get filled. And it will look like an impressive thing. And you will pretty soon question my sanity. But, but that's how faithfulness to God works. That's what God calls us to do. I don't think God works through these gigantic, bombastic moments. I think more often than not, he works through our moments of faithfulness where we do these pointless things like go to church week in and week out. Why? Why? What does he do? Well, you know, certainly we get fed through the music and, and through the preaching of the word and slowly God changes our hearts. But more than that, you know, when we we're here and you spend time with each other and you fellowship with each other and you build those relationships, stuff starts to happen. People are encouraged. People know that they can go to you when they have problems, when they have struggles. And I know, like, that's part of the problem too, is like people will come to a church and they're like, man, I'm not connected immediately. It takes time to build relationships slowly over the course of time. Maybe join a small group slowly or over the course of time, if you do the same things over and over, faithful steps to God, pointless responsibilities, God changes us. He changes the situation. He changes people around us. Look at the people who are working next door, some of you who work with the children week in, week out. What is the point of this? What is the point of working with, with the, the nursery? Those children aren't even conscious of any of the things we're talking about. But you know what? I think when we take our kids who can't even understand the gospel to church, and there are people who are not their parents, who love them in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, that plants a seed in their heart, that starts changing their souls, so that when they see other believers, they can recognize Jesus. Jesus working through them because when they were little kids and they couldn't help themselves, there were people who loved them and cared for them and nurtured them because the church is a family. 
the people next door, is there any glory in children's ministry? There is not. <laughs> not, in the, not in the short term. In the long term, there is. Slowly, over time, sharing and caring and nurturing children, discipling them in the name of Jesus, you will build relationships, you will build their souls to love God and to love others. What about in your, your home life? If you choose to obey your parents, even when it's frustrating and it's hard, that changes your relationship with them. If you choose to love your children and to not get angry at them when they deserve to be so yelled at, and you choose instead to, to love them, that changes things little by little, slowly over time. At your work, if you say, hey, man, well, I don't even work in a church. I don't work in a Christian environment. Yeah, but when you work, whatever you do, you work as if unto the Lord. You work as if you're working for him. Or even if you're unemployed and you're sending out... Um, you know, or underemployed, and you're sending out resume after resume, and you're making phone call after phone call, even though nothing is coming out, nothing is sussing out. What happens when we are faithful to do whatever, to, to do the job in whatever situation God has called us in? God works little by little, little, little task by little task, and eventually he will grow it and build something great. That's how God works greatness. Think about those of you who've been believers for a while. I think this is one of the damaging parts of the Christian stories that a lot of us tell. Right, and a lot of the movies we watch as Christians, like this horrible, you know, he's like this biker guy, and he's like on heroin and selling drugs to kids and kicking puppies, right? And it's like uh, smoking too, right? Because that's how you know he's really bad. And then he accepts Jesus. The leather comes off. He puts trades it in for a sports jacket, right? He gets a haircut. The tattoos miraculously go away. He's cured of smoking forever, right? And, and like, oh, all of a sudden he's changed. He's no longer, he's now a foster dad for puppies, right? Like, it's amazing. Like, he's totally, doesn't curse anymore. Not that they would curse in the, the, you know, Christian movie, but, but it's all totally changed. Is that how Christian life really works? Typically not sometimes, but oftentimes when we come to faith in Christ, God in his grace spoon-feeds us transformation over time. That's been the story of my life, and it's probably the story of most of your lives. Because if God was all of a sudden like, all right, who am I going to pick on now? Um, man, Wes. <laughs> right? Imagine Wes comes to faith in Christ today, and he's like, all right, Wes, here is everything. Oh, you have the biker's jacket on. That's why. Um, <laughs> here is everything wrong in your life. This is why you are so bad. I mean, would that be gracious? Does anybody like it when everyone points out all their flaws to them? No. But when we come to faith in Jesus, God loves us, he embraces us, and he just starts spoon-feeding us transformation after time, little by little, graciously, to slowly transform us over the course of time. We need to be faithful to do pointless responsibilities, whether you're talking about spiritual ones or physical ones, because that is how God brings about greatness in our souls, in our communities around us. It's all little steps by little steps of faithfulness in the same direction. Greatness isn't these bombastic moments. Greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God is a slow process. Let's pray. Father God, we have been conditioned 
in our American culture. We have been conditioned in our, in our Christian subculture in America to think that, that transformation happens in these, these, these gigantic moments. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it's in these dramatic moments. But Father, so often, just like with, with a young man Saul here, and in so many other places in Scripture, you work through a slow process. You call us to be faithful. You call us to be faithful like Saul to just go look for those wild donkeys and you'll take care of the rest. No one goes searching for wild donkeys thinking that they would become king of Israel. And in the same way, Father, in the mundane tasks, the laundry that we have to do, the lawns that need to be mowed, the meal preparation for our family, the time that we spend, the email after email, phone call after phone call, meeting after meeting. As we have those mundane tasks, but we are faithful to you and faithful to treat others with love and compassion and as image bearers of you, Father God. You work through those moments to achieve greatness. And it's not greatness for us, it is greatness for you. It is not glory for us, it is glory for you. At some point, we will see the kingdom of God if we are faithful to follow you in even the mundane tasks. Father, I pray for those who are here who are tired and worn out in their lives. They're tired of making the phone calls. They're tired of sending the emails. They're tired with the interviews. They're tired of the laundry. They're tired of saying the same thing over and over again. They're tired of showing love and compassion to their neighbor who doesn't deserve it and who's obnoxious and doesn't appreciate it. They're tired of showing grace to people who will just turn around and misuse it as an opportunity to hurt them more. Pray for those of us who are here and we are tired with the mundane tasks that we have to do over and over again. I pray that God the Holy Spirit will give us a vision to do everything as if unto the Lord and realize that you work through these pointless responsibilities to achieve a lasting transformation that that stretches well into eternity. Help us to follow you, Father God, in all that we do and to be faithful into whatever situation we find ourselves in. It's in Jesus' name we pray.